0: Attention to roll call. Welcome to the 265 Police Live Series, brought to you by the New York's finest retired and unfiltered podcast. The mission of this podcast is to provide expert analysis of past and present law enforcement related events with a trained eye. Listen to the boots on the ground weigh in
1: on the court of public opinion. And they may—they—that's forty-five thousand dollars. That's higher than a police officer's starting salary in the city of New York.
2: That person needs to be able to use our uh,
1: the city's budgeting software. So, so do, you, do you think that the, a police officer's sh- sh- uh, starting salary should be more than forty-two thousand so, dollars? Councilman Holden, I—I—I'm not going to give my personal opinion about what- Why not? Could we draw a better pool of, of officers if we raise their starting salary to say something livable in New York City? That's just, you know, you, you don't have to answer it or, I mean, if, if
3: you... I, I'm not, I'm not going to register an opinion.
0: All right, everybody, welcome to 265 Police Live, brought to you by New York's Finest Retired Unfiltered Podcast. I'm Eric Dim, retired lieutenant NYPD coined is the most complained cop. Along along with me is John McCary, retired lieutenant from the NYPD, the co-host and founder of New York's Finest Retired Unfiltered Podcast. John, we just had an opportunity to see this opening video. It's very interesting to me. It's extremely ironic, especially. Let me just say this before we go into it. There's nothing more I get than enjoyment than watching the executive director of the civilian complaint review board get squirmish and he just had the appearance that he just wanted to crawl in his chair and slump down. And what's extremely ironic to me is that you and I have attended CCRB monthly meetings and all we did was hear personal opinions and ironically... Now they don't want to give their personal opinions. Again, this just solidifies what you and I have been saying. We hear the civilian complaint review board addressed what they consider prob- problematic issues, but they never provide solutions. This was just just a snippet into actually viewing that that pinpoint that you and I have expressed. What are your thoughts, brother?
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's very telltale he won't give an opinion he can't say that he thinks that the starting salary is too low for a cop because then he's pro police and he won't say that it's sufficient because then he's then he's against the police I mean but clearly to me you you see bias because I don't think there's a person in New York City currently that thinks 42,000 is acceptable to live or or on a professional salary in a a dangerous profession where you're going to work nights, weekends, holidays, be away from your family and literally put your life on the line every day and be held to the highest standard in any profession there is at any time in history. So I don't think anyone, but he won't give one opinion. So I think it, I think at the end of the day, if I had to make a judgment shows a disdain for the police.
0: Well, Immediately, we saw a telltale sign of it. And I think that he caught himself. So he was addressed with this question. He started to say, well, the people of the civilian complaint review board, they have to know these different computer systems or software, which to me, I don't think there's any comparison to a police officer that is actually has his or her boots on the ground In New York City, especially with the increase in crime that we've seen in the anti-police rhetoric and the hate that they just have to deal with the arm of Antifa and the BLM riots. So it's ironic. He had an opportunity, started to address it. I believe his real feelings were coming out. His personal opinion was that his personnel should be paid more because they have software to deal with. And then he caught himself. And then he realized, wait a minute, I've just boxed myself in. You're exactly right, John. I I, I can't express that I'm pro-police because obviously I'm not, but I can't actually say that I'm anti-police. I can express it in another manner, usually when I'm prepared, but this was an opportunity to answer a question that he was unprepared for. And that was the telltale sign that he believes that the police are just peasants and below him, and they're below his personnel, even though they're boots on the ground. So we have an idea right there exactly what the executive director executive director feels about the New York City Police Department and just cops in general.
4: And, and even the CCRB chair, Oliver Rice, she's sitting there. You know, he looks at he looks at her almost for approval. Like, is it alright that I'm not going to give a response on this? And she says the same thing. You know, she's the same person that a week ago was saying that. You know, basically, she doesn't look at the totality of the circumstances when it comes to police officers and situations. She only looks at the complainants point of view she doesn't care the entirety of the situation she judges a police officer by their actions solely based on what the complainant said takes into account none of the experience of the police officer so that was a clip from uh the budget hearing yesterday in the nypd um it was really telltale what happened there that was just one little clip and kind of jumped ahead Um, But the the overall riding theme of that whole hearing was budget, and there's a lot of stuff in there. But there's one thing that we want to highlight here today in the show, and it is the CCRB-NYPD department advocate relationship and what is going on. So, Eric, if you want, um, if you want to just bring us in and for those who aren't cops and just break down a little bit of the disciplinary process, what happens from when a cop is found guilty by the CCRB?
0: Uh, Absolutely. First of all, I am so excited that you actually brought this to light and you actually pinpointed and you proved the argument that I have been making for several years in regards to civilian complaint review board and with that with the department and with the unions I was met with resistance including the union lawyers in regards to my argument on this but in this clip that we're going to show it's apparent and it proves the point that I have been making in just a 20-30 second clip it's going to prove exactly what I'm talking about here so with the inception of the disciplinary matrix it reflects section 75 of the Civil service law, which is employment rights. So uh, for my cops that are out there listening right now, it's extremely important that you listen, your family listens, and any of our civilian followers, it's important that you listen and understand the dynamics of this, because it can get extremely confusing. And there was also some false information that was put out. I know... Sometimes uh, the professors that John Jay, that are former police officers, are looked upon as experts, but I will say this, and it may sound conceited, but it's honest, it's, it's confident, it's true, we are the experts here. I found a, a mistake by one of the professors that John Jay had put out an article that there's 18-month statute limitations from the time of a complaint, and that's completely inaccurate. So with the discipline matrix, the Section 75 law has not changed. That was prior to Discipline Matrix, but it's, it's in there right now. What it says, and this is the case. So the statute of limitations for the Civilian Complaint Review Board is that they have 18 months to investigate and dispose of a case from the time of the alleged misconduct. So that means, rhetorically speaking, if John, if you and I made an arrest today and an arrestee makes a complaint one week later, two weeks later, a month later, the civilian complaint review board will have 18 months from the time of the arrest. That's the date of the incident of the alleged misconduct. Not the date that they make the complaint. 18 months. The civilian complaint review board has to investigate that case and dispose of it. What does that mean? Either substantiate it, or come up with a disposition, they have to make their determination. And within that 18 months, if a police officer or any rank and file, and I'll use myself as an example, a lieutenant who's doing intrusive police work, who will be the byproduct of numerous complaints, if that complaint is substantiated, the Civilian Complaint Review Board has to also serve that member within those 18 months. Now, my argument has always been that Within that 18 months, this documentation, the narrative, the investigation that is done by the Civilian Complaint Review Board has to be provided to the New York City Police Department's Department Advocates Office. It has to be vetted through different layers before the New York City Police Department can accept it and the Civilian Complaint Review Board to actually proceed with charges, which means a police officer will be served with administrative charges. From there, they'll have the opportunity. To either take it to trial, or take a plea, some type of settlement, according to what's in the disciplinary matrix now. hopefully and this where police officers, including myself, the Civilian Complaint Review Board only has three attorneys assigned to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, so they do not have the manpower to for the police officers to have due process. The members of service to take these cases to trial. Now, the other caveat, which I take which I find extremely problematic, and it has been weaponized and utilized to for an abuse of power, is the COVID extension that was authorized by the governor. Now, how it worked, and there's been some argument with this, I, I've read, I read some case law on it. There were some cases in regards to this. March 20th of 2020, the clock stopped for investigations because of COVID. November 3rd, it ended. So from March 20, 2020 to November 3rd, 2020, the clock stopped and it restarted November of 2020. Now, with that being said, the civilian complaint review has completely weaponized. And in several of my cases, I was served with charges and specifications uh, according to Section 75, which means that I would have to face potential discipline or have the opportunity to take a trial which I did not because of uh, their manpower. But w- with that being said, they exceed the statute of limitations with the 18 months, and in addition, the time that was added on for the COVID extension, they exceeded that as well. So there's also a caption in the statute of limitations that says, if the case can be proven to be a crime in court, the statute of limitations can be exceeded. Now my argument has always been, if that's the case, the Civilian Complaint Review Board can continue to be an investigative body. They can refer it to an agency, but they cannot dispose of charges themselves. So that is my argument. I'm actually exploring and doing the research on that issue, and I'm pretty confident that I'm correct in that matter, that they cannot dispose of discipline. I was actually charged with forcible touching and assault for a case that exceeded the statute limitations. And exceed the stats' limitations with the COVID extension. I was served about three years later after the arrest. And with that, they charged me with forcible touching and assault. They charged me with crimes. They didn't charge me administrative charges. However, because of the 50 A, if you actually look at the 58, it will still say substantiate. That's why I want to be the catalyst for this change. I was found not guilty. So it's not reflective in the 58. Now we're going to show you this clip. What's important about this clip is it's been my argument. And it's proven here that the NYPD needs a sufficient amount of time to vet these cases to ensure that the civilian complaint review board has a correct narrative that matches the department policy that they indicate that the member service had violated. And this has to be factual. It has to be in a documentation with the narrative. We can't just say Eric Dim used excessive force and not present what procedure they violated. And what the Civilian Complaint Review Board doesn't also understand is that a police officer, a member of the service, does not have to retreat. Yes, they use these bu- buzzwords, de-escalation, but there is case law. Police officers are not required to retreat. They are re- they, they are, n- are, going to continue their mission. That means it's making arrest if force is used. So there's a lot of arguments with that. So the NYPD is supposed to have a, submis- a sufficient amount of time to vet these cases what that amount of time is, we don't know. We're going to have to explore that. So, John, with that being said, let's play this clip, and then I, I would like us to s- discuss it. So I just want to sum it up for everyone. 18 months of of limitations. COVID provided an extension that the Civilian Complaint Review Board weaponized while they were still working via Zoom, while all the cops had their boots on the ground, in addition to that. Now, with that being said, we had heard that... The NYPD needed 120 days to have a sufficient amount of time to vet 40 specific cases. But somehow in this clip, you're going to see that there was 800 some more cases served in April of last year. I was one of them. And in less than 30 days of receiving this information, they were able to give a 99.8% back of acceptance with less than 30 days. 800 some more cases compared to 40 over 120 days. That's a huge difference. At a 99.8% accuracy, that's 0.2% margin of error. That's absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't add up. John identified this clip that proves the point. Let's go with it.
3: It was never the goal that we would decline their cases. The goal was that they would get us the cases with sufficient time for us to do what we needed to do. In April of last year, we saw a month where 98% of the cases provided to us had less than 30 days prior to the expiration of the statute of limitations. And during a month where the flow was upwards of 800 cases, the department is used to 40 cases, 50 cases a month, but a backlog had become extensive. And yes, there were trying times during COVID for everyone, during the protests for everyone, but the tolling provision enabled them a far greater time frame for their investigations, again, six to eight months additionally. So all of those issues should have been sort of accounted for within that extra time that they were provided. But unfortunately, when the tolling provision ended on May 4th of 2022, we saw an influx of cases like we've never seen before. Discussions with CCRB suggested that they fully recognize that we were not going to be able to process that sheer number of cases with that timeframe, turnaround. But this is something that has been the topic of discussions within the department over the years. This is something that I personally look at every single day that I do my job as the department advocate. How can we better the relationship? How can we better the work? How can we ensure that these cases can be processed efficiently and effectively so that fair and immediate discipline can be imposed? When it's imposed years after the incident, it's certainly less meaningful to the person who committed the misconduct, it's less meaningful for the community that is awaiting resolution, it's less meaningful for the aggrieved, and certainly if a case must go to trial, there is this this long delay only works to negatively impact the strength of evidence, the strength of witness memories. So this this backlog of cases in these time frames is something that we find very important to address and perhaps this is something that needs to be examined more closely because maybe a more permanent time frame would make sense so that we can ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. Thank you. Thank you um, for expanding.
4: So, yeah, I mean, that's Amy Litwin. She's the department advocate. She's the NYPD's head of discipline. She's there to review all discipline. And what she said there is historically, Historically, they asked CCRB on a monthly basis to provide 40 to 50 cases to the NYPD and give them a 120 day timeframe for each case to go through the proper channels. But what she says there is the statute of limitations expired. They were given the COVID extension, and even that, with the extension, they took those cases all the way through the exemption. And dropped 800 cases in one month with less than 30 days. If you listen to the entirety of that of that hearing, you'll actually hear her say that some of them had less than two days to go. And in years past, when a case would come down and and the statute of limitations was right at the end, it, it's automatically close to file. That, that case would get sent to IAB. They would close the case to file. You cannot be, be issued discipline in the same way in a criminal trial. If your statute of limitations is up, case is thrown out, dismissed, statute of limitations up. So she clearly states there in April, they got a backlog of 800 of these cases with less than 30 days. I said it on my social media and I'll say it here. That is not even enough time to prioritize which cases are the most egregious and which ones they should work on, never mind to get through all the processes that they have to do. And, and I just want to correct the record, uh, Eric, you said it's 99.8% on the Sewell, and that is that's overall for the disciplinary matrix but for for CCRB, it's upwards of 86%. It's it's how many times they deviated from the disciplinary matrix is the 99.8%. I'll play that clip later too. But 86% of those of the of the time, uh, key Chan Sewell and department advocate agrees with CCRB. And I mean, we know that their investigations are not on the up and up. Many most of their investigations, if you talk to officers, if you talk to Eric Dim and we walk through his cases and maybe we'll do some of that here, some of his closed cases we'll talk about. Um, it's egregious. They have no burden of proof. Uh, The things they find guilty on are based on their own personal feelings and biases and not on actual fact, video, witness statement, account, officer testimony. At the end of the day, it comes down to they feel it more likely happened than not. Um, And and it's a big it's a big, big problem. And we have 800 cases we need to know. And everyone who was issued discipline around this time and Eric was one of them, we need to know. The date who was issued that who was issued charges at that time period, and how was their case investigated? How did they get through a backlog of eight hundred when they can't when they're having trouble getting through a backlog of forty to fifty in a hundred and twenty day period? How did they get through eight hundred cases? I, I don't. I feel whoever whoever those eight hundred people were, you were not given due process. You were not given a fair representation. The NYPD did not follow their own formula. So we need to know what that formula is and what cases got reviewed in that time period.
0: I definitely like to use myself as an example. My employment my employment rights were completely along with eight hundred some other eight hundred some other police officers or members of the police department, it's entirely impossible, virtually impossible, that these cases were vetted. Even if they decided to put mine at the top, my question is why? What is so special about my case? Why would my case be at the top? In addition to that, there's a lot of meat on the bone in this particular clip. clip. She talks about the tolling provision. So the tolling provision, what exactly, so the public understands, my cops out there understand, the tolling provision is exactly what I explained before this clip went on. The clock stopped March 20th, 2020, which coincided with the lockdowns of COVID, and the clock restarted for November 4th of 2020, ended November 3rd. What does that mean? It means that while your boots were still on the ground and you were still working as everything was normal and you were working in, with mass in the unknown, the civilian complaint review board investigators were hid away in their homes working via Zoom. They still had the same access and to to subpoenas, the same access they had to conduct their investigations in a timely manner. However, they utilized that extension to exceed the statute limitations. In addition to that, it's my it's it's my belief, it's my opinion, and We can look at the patterns and you can see that with the discipline matrix, the more discipline history you have, the more cases, the more aggravating factors. So I'm confident that they waited to have a pile of cases in my particular case to have more aggravating factors. Now, John, you know, I had sent you just some narratives of my civilian complaints offline. And some of these narratives are 30 and 40 some odd pages. I had sent you about three of them. It would legitimately take someone several months to go through that, just as it did to do the investigation. Now they exceed the statute limitations. Uh, On my case, they exceed the eighteen months. They exceeded the tolling provision extension. Just as you said, I was not given due process. I was served. I was served eight sets of charges. The calendar year from September two thousand twenty-one to September of two thousand twenty-two. All my cases had stemmed from 2018. The last civilian complaint review, uh, civilian complaint I had was June 4, 2020, which emanated from the riots. All my cases were old. By the time I was served, they were three years old. The last one was for a shooting. We apprehended a shooter on November 1st, 2018. I was served with it in 2022. It was almost four years old. They exceeded statute limitations several times, but yet I was served, and they circumvented it by charging me with the crime statute. Now, it's my belief, it's my opinion, I'm going to explore this, is that they can investigate it, but they cannot serve me with charges for a crime. What sufficient basis do the Civilian Complaint Review Board investigators have to charge me with a crime? That would be the DA's office. That is not in their purview. However, they did utilize that. I do believe they can investigate it and forward to the DA's office, but it's not them who could actually charge me. But they charged me with crimes in a civilian case, according to Section 75, in the administrative trial of the Department Advocates Office. So now I, it's uh, my opinion right now. So John and I at New York's Finance Retired and Filtered Podcast, we're going to compile some data. So I'm reaching out to the police office, to the members that are watching this podcast. I was served in April of last year with three cases on one particular day. I was called and harassed numerous times by the Department Advocates, Department Advocates Office. The day the statute limitations were supposedly... Uh, up to be served, and that was after the statute limitations was exceeded. I was I was told that normally the department advocate's office closed at five, but I was told that they would wait for me, and they waited for me at eight o'clock at night, and that's when I received my charges at specifications. So, for any cops out there, any members of service, if your your vacation was suspended and you had to be served with charges, if you were told you had to come in, it was going to expire that day as my case, or if you were served in April at all, and your case was extremely old, and you did not get due process. As she just said here, you would not get due process because my cases were all, were three to four years old, and I was told I would have to wait another three years to take it de- to department trial, which is extremely excessive, not due process. If you, were one, uh, if you had a particular case, just as such as I did, reach out to us at New York's Finance Retired and Filter Podcast. Please reach out to us through the website and let us know we're going to compile data. It's my opinion, and as John as well. we we'll are probably probably get about 800 to 1,000 members that have had their civilian employment rights according to Section 75 violated.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, just what Eric's saying there is they went past due process, first off, so he should have never even got served. They went past the due process of them even having the ability to investigate the case. Then they said, oh, well, we have the COVID extension. They went past that due process as well. Then they said that that Eric was guilty of a crime, assault. They run it by the DA. The DA says, I'm not charging, right? That's it. The statute of limitations are over. Once the DA says, that's it. But no, they still held him on that crime to continue to investigate, to be in order to serve him with papers and issue discipline. I mean, what we just heard from her is it it may seem like a defensive position to you, But what you're really hearing is collusion. You're hearing collusion between the CCRB and the NYPD. And I, and, and, you know, and I, and I hate to bring this part up. I really do. I really do. I hate to bring this part up. But, but the fact of the matter is, is we don't deal in discipline. Me and Eric, we're not on the job anymore. There were plenty of people that listened to that same city council hearing Thanks to me and Eric, because now all of a sudden your unions are now sharing the city council clips like I've been doing this past year. Um, And that's fine. And I'm very happy about that. And I think that's exactly what they should be doing. But they heard what was said. And I think that they know what's going on without even hearing that. I think we just got privy to it by listening to this. Where are they in this? Their members were served without due process. They were denied promotions. They had vacation days taken from them. Some might have been fired. Some might have been suspended. Lives completely altered to bow down and kneel to the progressive movement, to the CCRB who's out there improperly investigating these cases, incompetent enough that they can't even investigate your case in a a timely manner. And instead of the CCRB, I'm sorry, excuse me, instead of the police commissioner, instead of the department advocate stepping up and saying, you know what? You did not meet the 120 days we gave you. I'm very sorry, that falls on you. These cases are, there will be no discipline issued. Instead of them doing that, they took eight hundred cases and they discriminatorily issued 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 um, discipline and took days from you, took money out of your pocket, suspended you, maybe did exactly what they did to Eric, forced him into retirement, denied him promotion to captain, and and basically destroyed his whole disciplinary record to the fact he couldn't even sit around and wait the three years. He couldn't sit around and wait the three years for the department trial because he knew they were going to keep investigating him and everything would be termination. So right now we have the most complained cop sitting here in the room right now. It's my contention. He's not the most complained about cop. It's my contention that he should have never received discipline for any of it. They will pass the statute of limitations. That was one. That was the first thing. So he shouldn't. He should have never been charged for that. Then, in, then they get an extension. Did that extension? Did that extension just give them the right to investigate? We're looking into it. We don't know. We don't know right at this moment in time. Did that extension give them the right to issue discipline after that 18 months? We don't know. That's a question we have. But then after that, when that expired, they said, you know what? We're just going to charge Eric Dim with a crime. CCRB cannot charge us with crimes. So, but they did it to circumvent the due process that was needed. And the police department went along with it and the union stayed silent about it. This is egregious. We got to get to the bottom of this.
0: Absolutely. For our viewers right now, I want you to actually just... Listen to this, grab onto it, and just think about it momentarily. What she said exactly, that typically for, it takes 120 days, okay, is an average of 30 days in a month, so please do the math on that to investigate and vet 40 to 50 cases. And now we're bombarded with 800 some odd cases, and in less than 30 days we're vetting those cases. It's virtually impossible. Some of these cases were actually handed to the New York City Police Department, department Advocates Office within days of the actual ex- statute, of t- statute of limitations being exceeded. Now, another caveat which the police department failed to look at, which is obviously they didn't it. I was served with three cases in one day in April of last year. And those cases emanated from two were from 2019 and one was from 2020. So how did the NYPD, NYPD not identify and say, wait, hold on a minute. These All these cases have exceeded the statute limitations, but somehow you've had the ability to serve all three in the same month. Now, if we don't see that that is done on purpose to weaponize the discipline matrix, done on purpose to get these cases in, they obviously were held back to, to put these in at a particular time, I I believe I was targeted by overzealous civilian complaint review board. I think the ultimate goal was termination and they tried to build my own history because John, you and I had spoken offline. I had showed you for the deputy commissioner of trials, some of the feedback. So for the cops that are out there, if you are part of an administrative trial, the narrative that is done by the administrative trial has to include your history that goes to the police commissioner and your history has to be viewed as part of the case. And in that case, The history said I had no discipline history. I had a five on my eval the last three years in a row, which five is the top you can get. And yet that was not a consideration. I had no discipline history. So the CCRB was building their own disciplinary history for me to weaponize the discipline matrix Again I'm reaching out to the police officers SARS lieutenants Even inspectors that were hit with charges That emanated from this, from these, uh, these George Floyd riots Please reach out to us We're going to compile the data and build a list Of how many people have been affected by this I'm pretty confident we're going to get About 800 to 1000 She just said it's impossible that they vetted These cases correctly For most of us the statute of limitations were exceeded several times It's my opinion I'm going to explore it. John agrees with it as well that the statute of limitations was exceeded. It's it's our opinion that the, the, the tolling provision gave them the right to investigate it. They can actually dispose of it in their own manner, but they cannot actually impose any discipline on you, which happened to me. And I'm sure it happened to many of you as well. So please, if you're listening, to this, you must reach out to us immediately. We need to compile this information. We need to take a stance, and we need to explore this and find that exactly that's what we're going to. Going to do. I'm pretty confident. Now, it does say with the statute of limitations, if proven to be a, a crime, that they can exceed the statute of limitations. But as far as charging a crime in a civilian trial, it doesn't appear to make any sense. That should be something that's handled by the, uh, the district attorney's office. That's been my argument. Uh, I, I, again, I was met with reluctance and resistance. In addition to that, I think this was very telling about due process. Due process should be the most important thing. Again, I was served with cases four years old. I was told I would have to wait three more years for a department trial. By that time, it would be almost a decade. Information I could not even rely on anymore. Information that was not even relative. Another argument that I have, and I think we need to propose it, is that the cases that I was served with emanated from 2018 up to 2020. Yet, I was held to the standards of the disciplinary matrix, which was not in its inception until January of 2021. If you've been affected by that as well, we'd like to hear from you as well. And I want to compile the data on that. And we're going to explore that as well. I have not gotten a confident answer, but I'm pretty confident once we go through this, there will be new case law based on the stats limitations that has been abused and weaponized by the civilian complaint review board who always provides their personal opinion but for somehow john the dutch was quite reluctant to give his personal opinion of what a salary should be by to a new york city police police officer speaking of salaries that was the topic of budget let's go into that john what are your thoughts on that i i I can't wait to hear from you because we spoke about this before Uh, let's give it to the public it's honest it's raw but it's the truth
4: yeah, let's get into that. But I just want to finish up on this because I, I think this is important. I, I really I think that, I think that this is this is really really this is something that needs to be explored. There were eight hundred cases. Some of those were not given discipline. The 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 PC deviated from that. How were those identified? Was that a phone call? How was that identified? How did you identify who wasn't going to get the discipline, right? So we need to know out of those 800 cases, how many did we accept them? What was the- <laughs> was any portion of the process deviated from? Because like she said, there's a lengthy, lengthy process. And it goes through multiple bureaus. It goes through the first step. It goes through the chief of department. It goes to the PC. It comes back down. Then it goes to the officer. So they rushed and skipped everything to discipline you. That in itself is a huge, huge problem. Um, and, you know, let's definitely get into the pay, but my, but but I, I want to speak on this as well because an article came out the other day. An article came out the other day and it basically said that more than half of the times, more than half of the times, Key Chance Sewell goes against the CCRB's recommendation more than half the times. And I gave her a shout out and so did you, Eric, but then, sure did. but then a follow-up article came out and it said, well, that's not truly accurate. She deviated 86% of the times in in in, in one month. She deviated in, in, in a period of a few months, excuse me. She deviated because the CCRB was dumping these cases on them. Like they just said, like the egregious time in April and God only knows how many other times there were, that was just the most egregious. God knows what it really is on the month to month. Cause they didn't really get into that. They were just highlighting one month there. Um, and so the follow-up article comes out. So, you know, so, and then I bashed her on, on the follow-up article. Cause I was like, Oh, that's, you know, that's easy. That's whatever. But in this trial still with the department advocate there, They start to talk about the disciplinary matrix. And, you know, me and Eric have spoke on the disciplinary matrix and how unfair it is, how it doesn't make sense, how it's unreasonable and unattainable for you, one, to not violate it. And two, the penalties you're given and the aggravating and mitigating factors are subjective and discriminatory and can be bent any way they want. Um, but and and in the beginning of that, the police commissioner says in the beginning of this of this hearing, the police commissioner says that it's a living document, the way that Dermot Shea wrote it. It will change over time. And she said that those she made recommendations to change it and they will be made public. So I'm very curious to see what those changes are. But I, I have no faith in her whatsoever because I hear the were i heard right after that what this woman said about what the department advocate said about how many times with ccrb in total and all discipline throughout the the department how much they deviated from the matrix and the discipline in the matrix so that you know it was real telltale i mean eric what do you think is going to be the recommendation for her That she's going to give. She says she's going to make it to the public. Changes to the disciplinary matrix.
0: Well, I think that's complete hogwash. I think it's just virtual signaling at at this point. I don't think there's going to be any changes. I think she's just buying time. It's great. It sounds sexy. But even in her case, she claims that there's going to be modifications. That we have to explore it. But yet, she has actually deviated from CCLB's recommendations. Less. Than even her predecessor, Commissioner So, where is the modification? I don't see it happening at all. I think that it's completely obvious that if any cases were deviated, I'm sure there's some diversity, inclusion there, and potentially nepotism. Other than that, what is the vetting process? She said it in this interview. You know, listen, I was going to talk about pay, but I didn't want to bore you with this stuff. But you know what? I guess we can go on with it because it's just, it just, Just so much meat on the bone with this. There's so many layers to peel back here. She said it has to go through layers such as the police commissioner's office, the first step commissioner's office, the department advocate's office. And you and I know what's the slowest thing in the New York City Police Department or any government agency is logistics. So the logistics of just documentation moving from one office to another, we know is extensive amount of time. And I can actually reflect, it. I think my case is, completely mirror exactly what they're saying and just proves the case of how my employment rights, I'm sure many others were violated as well. And we're going to speak to you because you're going to reach out to us. I was served with charges and specifications. My trial actually commenced in January of 2022 for an arrest that was made in March of 2019. The trial did not complete until June of 2022. And then the, that documentation had to be forward to the police commissioner and I did not receive a finalization until I was retiring. And the reason why they finally came back with the decision, because I was retiring, I was willing to walk out the door, not in good standing because I was not getting due process. At that point, I made a decision and I was comfortable, uh, comfortable with that decision that I would leave not in good standing with open cases because I was not getting due process. I've heard you know, Cop Watch and other various uh, advocates who uh, have an anti-sediment for police say that I was forced to retire based on these civilian complaints. And they always talk about giving due process to perpetrators, persons of interest, subjects. Where was my due process? I wasn't given due process, and yet I never committed a crime. These were c- uh, civilian trials. This was based on employment. I was not given any due process. Uh, completely violated Section 75 of the civil service law. It's just a complete atrocity. The layers were never peeled back. These cases were not properly vetted. It's impossible that they they vetted these cases. John, you saw my cases just three narratives. Each one was probably 40 to 50 pages. It's impossible to vet these cases. I personally have taken part in these arrests, and I had to read these narratives numerous times so I could actually understand the jargon that was in these documents and actually make sure that everything matched up. And I found... Numerous inaccuracies and mistakes that were never addressed. It just was not ample amount of time. I think that uh, they're caught red-handed with their pants down. I think that they're probably shocked that they actually provide this information. And luckily, you and I actually identified it. And I don't think the unions would have been abreast upon it if you and I did not identify these atrocities that just they just admitted to. Eight hundred so much cases. It's just impossible. They would need 35,000 members of service just to work on these cases to actually get these v- cases vetted. I know other police officers that worked for me, that they were their vacations were suspended. They were told they could not take the day off. They were told if they were sick, they would be served at home. And they had less than 30 days. Some of these cases were served within days. And they were told to come into the department advocate's office to get served, including myself. I had to, they waited for me till eight o'clock at night to serve me for something that wasn't even properly vetted. Three cases at one time that were three to four years old. Where is the due process? Where is the respect? Com- completely treated unfairly.
4: Yeah. 800 cases get dumped in their lap, 800 Salem witch trials right in <laughs> their lap. Because that's what it is. I mean, come on, let's let's call it what it is today. You go on a CCRB. I mean, you're, you're getting found guilty of something. They're going to write you up about something. Somebody in that case is getting found guilty of something. I don't care what it is. So it's a Salem witch trial. You see the anti-police sentiment. You hear them saying they're not taking the totality of the circumstances. And right there alone, right with that statement alone, that we're not taking the totality of the circumstances, we only care about the complainant, I believe that are the funk agency, the whole agency should be ripped from New York City. That let's let's start over because there's an anti-police sentiment there. You see the anti-police sentiment in city council. You know, it's, it's a it's a joke that the majority of these people are on the public safety committee when they have they're not serious people whatsoever. They have no knowledge or anything about, or, or nor do they care about public safety. They don't know what it is. I mean, everything they've instituted in the last 10 years has, is, is in direct conflict with public safety. It's made New York City less safe. It's, it's weakened the police departments, weakened the police officer. And we have appointed political management in, in, in office that's afraid to go back at these people even when they're wrong, even when they deviate from the rules. They will bend the rules to find you wrong. And then we're going to hear that the disciplinary matrix is a good thing. Um, She's going to revise the the disciplinary matrix. Me personally, I think she's just going to go for easy, minor things. Anything else, she's going to turn her eye on. Anything that's politically unfriendly, she's going to turn her eye on. I mean, she is Eric Adams to me. The last three or four days really highlighted to me. She is just like Eric Adams. She says the right things at the right moments but she never does them and i just want to play this clip to to because you're going to hear it all right here
3: questions one you pointed out the matrix and the importance of complying with our disciplinary system penalty guidelines and as the commissioner stated that is something that we take very seriously we think these guidelines are functioning exactly the way they should Um, since the inception of these guidelines the department has reviewed um, and concluded over four thousand disciplinary matters It should be noted that that includes CCRB's disciplinary cases, but that's not exclusive to CCRB's disciplinary cases. The department has a greater number of disciplinary cases that are investigated internally by department investigators. Of those cases, the department has deviated from our disciplinary system penalty guidelines um, 0.3% of the time. In other words, since the inception of the matrix, which you noted was in January of 2021, um, we have agreed with the penalties within the matrix 99.7% of the time. Under Commissioner Sewell's leadership, we've seen that at 99.8% of the time. So we are applying the matrix and utilizing the penalties appropriately. As you know, when when we deviate from the matrix penalties, we have agreed to post publicly the reasons for that deviation. Since since its inception, we've posted 10 letters of deviation. Those 10 letters include 12 members of service, but there have only been 10 instances of cases that we've seen where we have posted that we have deviated from the matrix. Now, when we talk about penalty departures with the CCRB, As the commissioner noted, we actually agree with their recommendations far more often than we don't. Of course, we do not agree 100% of the time. We have a very extensive review process for all disciplinary cases, and that includes for CCRB's recommendations. When they submit their recommendation, their board reviews their case, and we receive their investigative file, and they recommend a certain outcome. We have many layers of review. The review begins with my office. Attorneys are assigned to review the cases that they submit to us, and we make recommendations in terms of the legal sufficiency of their recommendations. Not every case we receive from the CCRB provides an analysis as to how they reach their penalty or a legal analysis that speaks to the officer's misconduct. We take a look at their cases, the first deputy commissioner's office reviews the cases, the police commissioner's office reviews the cases, and then
4: there it is.
0: You know what, John? I call straight up bullshit, and I tell you why. In that first clip that you played, she talks about how it's important to protect due process, protect the civilian rights, employment rights for our members of the service. But here, in this this portion, completely just contradicts everything she just said. How they do an extensive review of the discipline? They obviously don't do an extensive review because, John, I, I like to give transparency to the public. And John, you know, is is actually saw some documentation of my civilian complaints. In one of the cases, I was charged with untruthful statements. This was actually uh, this was actually gang members that we were investigating. I had credible information. I had a confidential informant that provided information that that these known gang gang members would be in possession of a load of firearm on a particular day at a particular time. Now in the documentation that you read John that this was forwarded to the police commissioner and signed for review in that case i refused to provide the identity of the civilian complaint uh i'm sorry identity of the uh the confidential informant i refused to provide the identity of the source and any information in regards to that source why because this is about public safety the civilian complaint review board says that they're about public safety but they wanted me to re- release the information of a confidential informant And put this person's life at risk And I refused to do that And with that I was charged for untruthful statements John you are my witness You saw the documentation That was forward to the police commission That was part of a plea deal on my way out Towards retirement And in it which is another inaccuracy that I identified the civilian complaint review board indicated that I did not have any documentation to reflect that there was a confidential information or a credible source of information in regards to this encounter. Nowhere would that be documented. And I would not provide that information because the ultimate goal is to protect that source. It's about protecting life and preserving safety. And the audacity that the civilian complaint review board wanted me to release that information and, I refuse to. I was found guilty of untruthful statements. That's a complete flaw. That was not reviewed. That was not, that did not go through layers of extensive review by the police department. Again, we need to look at this also. She said there was 10 letters that were posted public of 12 members of service that they deviated from. How did they find 12 members of service to deviate from? I'm sure these were very simplistic cases. It's very easy to go public where someone didn't present a business card or something that doesn't have a political agenda or something that w- would be politically charged. That would be showing real leadership and challenging the Civilian Complaint Review Board's ideology and how they prove cases not inc- not coinciding with department policy and law, completely violating due process.
4: Yeah, so just to sum up, like what, what we're saying. We're saying there is cohesion between the CCRB, the NYPD. Um, The NYPD does not want to be called to the carpet and not come up with the numbers. It's almost like a ComStat game now. They don't want to have the numbers that they're deviating from CCRB because they don't want to answer to their leftist masters who hate the police and are trying to abolish it. (laughs) Our unions are aware of it. Your unions are aware of it. And they're not pushing back. They're letting your cases go through what are you gonna do oh (laughs) Caban's a great guy right Caban's a great guy he's walking around with his harem he's walking around with his harem i haven't heard the guy so i heard the guy speak one time and now i know why he doesn't speak but i heard him speak one time he's walking around with his harem he gets all his buddies promoted but he 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 should be pushing back at this man so he's you know he might be a good guy to have at a barbecue but he's not a good guy to have in the first step spot that's for damn sure you know, because he's staying silent. I, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish watching the whole city council hearing because I want to see if he talks at any point in this. Um, I recommend he doesn't after hearing him speak. But you know, it's, 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 it's really egregious, man. It's re- It's really sad to watch this department get torn to shreds, and that's what's going on. It's, it's being torn to shreds. If it's not the vaccine mandate, if it's not CCRB, it's the disciplinary matrix, it's the internal pressures, it's the internal policy, it's everything that's coming down the pipeline. It's the diversity, equity, inclusion bullshit. It's everything is (laughs) intentionally at the same time. They're saying, oh, we we don't know why it's a hiring process. At one point, they, they have one of the commissioners saying, people like to work remotely now. People that become cops... Aren't trying to work remotely people are fleeing this department in droves and going to departments for less pay and less benefits but eric 100 percent. let's talk about the pay but i mean that's always the number one reason for the for the exodus that's given by the police experts by the job by our union you know it's always been our contention yes it's high up there but it is not the sole reason it's not even close if it was just a pay These guys would still be here because the bottom line is this. They're leaving. The majority of cops that are leaving are leaving for less money and less benefits. So it, it just it falls on its face right there. Oh, I know one guy that left for the MTA. I know one guy that went to the Port Authority. Congratulations. I'm talking about all the guys that went to Florida, Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, everywhere out of the state. To little departments upstate. I'm talking about all those guys. They make less money than they did as a police officer in New York City. And you know what You know what they all tell us? I'm much happier. My life is much better. Because it's the internal nonsense that's destroying this department. And it's the lack of leadership. And it's the city managers that are sitting up there commanding big pay as the reason. So... Eric, I'll pl- I'm gonna I'm gonna play the clip now. This clip is gonna be of Bob Holden asking the police commissioner, giving his opinion, and asking the police commissioner what she's gonna redo to recruit and retain. Doing, but
1: I don't know if we're gonna get anywhere unless we increase the starting pay. What what is it? Forty two thousand. How do you how do you live in New York City on forty two thousand? How do you buy a home in New York City? how do you expect to save with forty two thousand dollars salary and a dangerous job at that
3: so Councilmember, I'm glad you brought these things up because all of the things that you mentioned the challenges that you mentioned we can still point to that every day the women and men in the NYPD are doing their job arrests are exactly. up, shootings are, are down, uh, the number of victims are down, we're seeing numbers uh, that we have driven down in the past year with all the conditions that you just described Um, The the precincts are a concern of ours. Uh, I walked around to a number of the precincts as well. I I visited some transit districts and some of the conditions are deplorable for them to work in. And we made it a priority to address that.
1: I I have a, I'm just sorry to interrupt. My time is up. I, I went into the
4: 110 precinct to do roll call to action. The women and the men, that's all we've gotten from this police commissioner, the women and the men. What'd you think about that? What'd you think about that exchange, Eric,
0: well, there was more to this clip. Uh, obviously, we don't have all uh, the entire clip to show. But in that exchange, she never actually addresses the question. She kind of sidesteps it. Uh, she really evades the question, kind of gives some sexy answers. She talks about how even with all these challenges the police officers are facing, they're still out there doing their job, and people still want this job. They want to come for the training, which I think is kind of laughable at this point because we know the, le- the training has been completely downgraded. The training is a joke. We know it. We see these videos. We see police officers getting their ass kicked on a daily basis. You don't have to. And the requirement for a mile and a half is out the window. Other requirements out the window. The standards of hiring are based on loot stan- loose standards. The recruitment efforts it, 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 it engages this whole ideology diversity inclusion. It's not about organically getting the most suitable uh, candidates. Why? Pay is important. I agree with you, but it's just one component, which he doesn't address. And I'm sure the union's not going to like this, but it's the reality. We are here to address the truth. So there's been some contract talk. And with that contract talk, we've heard this sexy talk about a pilot program with a chart that's supposed to increase the quality of life of police officers. 12-hour tours, three on, three off. Some 10-hour tours, which would be four-on, three-off, four-on, four-off. And with this, there would be less commutes to work. The ideologies, there would be better quality of life. Pay is important, yes. But with pay, there should be other factors, talking about the quality of life of police officers. That, I never heard it being addressed. The the PBA had an entire meeting addresses the issue with the chart. This is supposed to be the sexiest thing going. This is supposed to... Uh, Accumulate to retention But yet we never heard this Out of the commissioner's mouth All we heard is that people still want this job Basically what she's saying The job sucks Yeah, The precincts are terrible The streets are terrible But they still want the job We're still getting them What she doesn't tell you Who are they getting She doesn't tell you that the police officers we're getting now are meek, timid, and docile. She doesn't tell you that the police officers they get now, as soon as they're in, as fast as they get trained, they're out the door going to another department with an NYPD certificate. She doesn't mention that at all. That she negated from the question. And I think his question was very fair. But these questions are completely sideswiped. I don't know why that we're fooled to believe. I constantly hear it. John, you hear it. Ah, Commissioner Sewell's great. She never got a chance. Basically, that she's the best thing since sliced bread. Where is it? I've been fair. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. But I have not yet seen it. Again, 99.8% of the time, she has found that the Civilian Complaint Review Board has been accurate. With 800-some-odd cases being served a month, she finds that the police officers still want this job with this ridiculous amount of pay. And they have to follow residency requirements that she does not have to file in addition. That's another problematic issue. John, what are your thoughts on, on her response?
4: I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely very telltale of the future of this job. There is no leadership. There's no plan, right? She got at one point in there, in that council hearing, if you go back and I recommend if you're on the job, or you're in the media, I recommend you listen to the whole thing because there's a lot of doozies in there. I'm still actually going through all of it. (laughs) Some doozies. doozies. But at one point she says, oh, you know, we're going to hire 500 more people. You know, when me and Eric came through, I think my academy class was 1,800 and we retained a lot of the 1,800 and a lot of the 1,800 are still on and inspectors, detectives, sergeants and lieutenants and captains. (laughs) And, you know, we retained a lot of that. And now you're getting classes of 500 people, you know, at the, in the same intervals as you, as people are fleeing this job. And the majority of that 500 are leaving right away. So, what you know, and so it's just disingenuous to say that people are still taking this job. But it's very telltale. I mean, we hear that, you know, the commissioner worked in Nassau. We're hearing this, you know. Particularly from the PBA, the commissioner worked in Nashville. She's all for the modern chart. She wants you guys to come in less. I don't believe that because I don't believe that the police department wants you to come in less. If anything, they want you to come in more. I mean, and we <laughs> can clearly see that they're over—they're they're blowing out the overtime budget, and that was the whole thing about about this meeting. Is like, why are you why are you blowing out the overtime budget? And they blamed it on the transit. They blamed it on the transit plan, and they said the transit plan's unsustainable. And at some point, they're going to have to pull back from it, but they don't know how they're going to do it. They never addressed it. They don't know how they're going to pull back for it, or when they're going to pull back for it. They're going to do it when they're told, and then they'll come up with some other cockamamie decision at that point. But as of till then, they're just going to work used to death. That's it. I Nineteenth mean, year. I mean, good for you. You know, I'm jealous. You know, but you know it. it, it you know it is what it, it is. What it is. They don't. There is. There is nothing there. So she doesn't bring up the modern chart. She doesn't bring up the possibility of you getting a contract. It's very telltale to me that that contract probably not that good. If she's not bringing up the pay and she's not bringing up the modern chart, I'm gonna say that whatever's sitting on that table right now is not that good, and that's why it's being held, and everyone knows it. Um, you know, very telltale. You know, when I when I think about what Corey Grable said on this podcast, he said there's going to be an exodus. There might be an exodus after the contract gets released. And I think did he did he know something that we don't know? Did he knows. Does he have a little bit more info than the rest of us? You know, and Eric's holding up a sign here. Where is the contract? It's a, it's a fair question. I mean, I know it's sitting on the desk. We all know it's sitting. On the desk. <laughs> So when's it getting released is the question. I don't know, but she doesn't say anything. They just, the next part of that clip, she goes into, mm. we're going to improve the precincts. It's something that Bratton did. It's something that O'Neill did. It's something that Shay did. It's something that she's going to do. I mean, listen, it is what it is. I will say that the NYPD, I was in facility, the NYPD is spending millions of dollars to upgrade these facilities. The fact is they're not going to redo every precinct. It is going to take, Years and years and years, and by the time they're done, they'll mm. stop over where they, where they picked up where they, where, where they first they won't go right back. It's an ever evolving thing. The precincts aren't set up. Bob Holden's 100% right, most of them are over 100 years old. Um, and, and you know, they weren't designed for the, the New York City today or the police force we have today, they weren't even designed to hold body cameras or batteries or cell phone charging. know these these buildings didn't have the technology they didn't have the foresight when they built them most of them were built in the early 1900s um and you know but i i do think the mypd is going doing a good job but that's nothing new that she's doing this is something that's it's probably a hundred year plan and and in the next hundred years it'll be another hundred i mean it's just it just is what it is these buildings are old it's new york city construction is very very expensive it takes forever permitting takes forever um, and that's the only thing that she has is people take this job and we're going to upgrade the facilities and all you guys are going to run out the door.
0: The pay is actually probably, I would say there's, there's so many layers of issues right now that should be problematic for a cop when it comes to morale. I think morale is, is probably the biggest issue. I think pay is probably the, at the bottom of these issues. There's so many layers of issues. Morale, the internal pressures of the police department, the matrix, the civilian complaint review board, the oversight of risk management, the oversight of internal affairs, the self-reporting with these documentation, the media, the public, the mayor, are you looking good? I think pay is at at the bottom right now. I don't want to say this, but it's the reality. John, you and I talk about this all the time. If there was zero rates... If the police officers knew today that they weren't getting any raise, they would still go out and do a fantastic job because it's in their blood. The cops that are out there right now, some of them, since the day they started, they have old, about six years on the job. Some of them are probably on the list to get promoted to sergeant. They've never had a contract. They might get promoted before they actually have a contract. And yet they go out there and they give their heart. They give their heart in full to do this job. So pay. Pay. I would. I would just like to say, is an issue, but it's at the bottom of the list. It's not a major factor. You could pay these guys in 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 dirt; they're still going to go out and do the job because they love it. It's the other factors that that start to highlight because morale is bad and all these other factors. So now we have to look at pay. But if that, if everything is great, the quality of life is great, the cops are happy to come to work, the conditions are 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 acceptable and suitable for everyday work and the quality life of of, of a chart is good and your car is nice that when you and you're treated fairly with respect the pay would be at the bottom like well everything's so great you know at the pay i'll figure out how to live i'll live within my means But the pay is an issue because everything else is a pitfall. It's all unraveling. It's crumbling. If you're a police officer, you're carrying all this weight on your shoulders right now. You got morale, which is terrible. All this oversight, all the stuff that you have to carry that responsible for. You're being critiqued on your body-worn camera by your own personnel. You're being critiqued by the media, by the public. You hear the city council meetings. They don't care about you. They just admitted that they're not giving you due process. They're not vetting your cases properly. And they're still allowing the civilian complaint review board to be your boss, to have the overriding say over you versus the police commissioner. John, you and I have debunked all these issues to the cops out there. There's no one out there fighting for you like we are. And we will continue to fight for you because no one is fighting you from the inside. John, you said collusion. I agree. They said they want to build a relationship. That's all they care about is the relationship between the police department, the civilian and complete complaint review board. And if that means they have to drive a tractor over you, they will because they did. They drove the tractor over me, but I emerged. I got back up. Some people, they'll drive the tractor over you and you won't. You may be terminated. I showed John some of the paperwork and I showed him how the discipline matrix was weaponized in my case. It actually said that I was... I, I that there were aggravating factors in my case because of my rank. Anything could be an aggravating factor. If you have one day in on the job, well, you know what? You have one day more than someone else. That's an aggravating factor. You should have known better. You're in you're in a busy precinct. You should have known better. You're on patrol. You wear the uniform every day. Everything could be an aggravating factor. It's extremely subjective. Think about that. That's disciplinary, disciplinary matrix has not been ratified. It has not been explored by the The commissioner, as we see, I think that what she's actually saying is a shame. I think she's just straight lying. These are lies that are coming out of her mouth to the public. So I'm tired of hearing how great she is. Actions speak louder than words. Show me you're great. Don't just tell me she's great. Show me.
4: Well said. Well said. And let's talk about an appointment that the police commissioner brought in Um, because she's so great. I, I, I was like, I was watching this hearing and I just learned so much from this one clip and from the Deputy Commissioner of Community Affairs. I see exactly why he was appointed. I could see exactly why he's appointed and the words of wisdom and the care and understanding of his job and what he does, his bureau does and what they're doing and what the overall writing mission of this job is, is going to be highlighted clear as day. I'm going to take you to the clip right now. This is Deputy Commissioner of Community Affairs for the NYPD, Mark Stewart. He's a former transit cop in the 80s. I know somebody else that was a transit cop in the 80s. Um, let's hear him.
2: Good morning, Deputy Commissioner Mark Stewart. Good morning, in place, sister. we have an option program that we have, um, it turns out, at 127 in Pennsylvania. And their main objectives is to take our youth. And teach them skills, de-escalation, and. Is the, is the training altered to young people? I'm over here. Oh, oh, hey. hey. How you doing? I'm um, yes, it's altered to, able, to, able to young people and it's been a great success in our options and our program. Uh, the success has been so great that we're going to spread it to four, four boroughs now. When was the last time you revised it and revamped it? Excuse me. When was the last time you revised it or revamped the training, the de-escalation training? We revised it uh, probably about a month ago. Um, Also, this question
4: is. (laughs) (laughs) Can you play that again, please? (laughs) I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go out on a limb here. They didn't revise the de-escalation training a
0: month ago. (laughs) But hold on. I'm glad that you said that So this is the buzzword that everyone uses And he's the Deputy Commissioner of Community Affairs And he's teaching kids about options About de-escalation But as I heard He can't even say the buzzword He said de-es I wrote it down de escalation If you can go back to that I didn't know what de-escazation was But now I know It's another form of de-escalation He also says that it's the option program he never tells us what the options are. He doesn't even know his own job. He he looked quite confused to me. Hey, listen, you don't have to be the greatest public speaker to say what your job is. It's something that you do every day. And you revised a program that we don't even know what the program is a month ago. What are the options? You're going to teach the youth to be great? I mean, we have the Explorer program already. What do we need you for? What is this program? What's so special about this program? How does this program deviate from the Explorer program, which is at every precinct? Why is this guy effective? Because he knows Mayor Adams and he found a job for this guy? Because I don't understand what he does. I want to know if I have an opportunity. I think I'm going to call One Police Plaza and I would like to know what are the options program because I know young kids that might need to take part, but we have no idea what these options are in the de escalation. I thought it was de escalation, but it's the de the big buzzword. You can't even pronounce it. You idiot. You are a fool. How do they hire you? Ridiculous.
4: I mean, we know how they hire them. Nepotism. It's, he's obviously <laughs> Eric Adams' friend. He Chancellor, although she appointed him, was told to appoint him. Um, and, you know, I, I find it funny. I was reading an article the other day about uh, Danielle Outlaw, the, uh, the, uh, the police <laughs> yes. chief for Philly, and she wouldn't take the NYPD job. And this is before that we even had a deputy commissioner of public safety before that title even existed. And she said, I'm not going to be a police commissioner answer to Phil banks. So, I mean, that was obviously told in those interviews. So, I mean, let's put that out there. So now you have his is transit cop, he's placed as the, as the, as the, as the deputy commissioner, he has the assimilated rank of three-star chief. Um, and it's obvious he doesn't know his job. I don't care how he pronounces words. I don't care that he sounds like a mush mouth. I do sometimes too. So do you, Eric? I really don't care. I don't care that he can't pronounce the words. I would have liked to see. I would have liked to see her actually question him, like, "What do What do you do there, Commissioner? Like, what's What's your job? Tell us about the options program. Uh, tell us what the escalation. What What happens in this de escalation training? Because I saw clear as day he was fumbling with those papers. He didn't even know what to say when he was asked. He couldn't tell you his job, which leads me to believe that he's not doing a good job there. That's a no-show job for him. I got, a, I got a lot of little birdies tell me a lot of little things. And a lot of the things I hear are that the women in his office are very not happy and do not feel comfortable around him. It's very, and I think we're going to have a guest on this show come on and talk about that at some point Um, because his name's ringing a bell to me more and more now. Um, But, you know, that's something we'll explore at a later date. Um, But, I mean, you could clearly see the incompetence there, the incompetence in, again, that is not leadership. If you want to know why the morale's down, this man has the assimilated rank, actually higher rank than a three-star chief. He's a deputy commissioner. He could actually tell the chiefs what to do um i i wouldn't feel comfortable working for him um you know i wouldn't know why he would be getting paid more than me and i i and clearly it's just i'm gonna just i'm gonna hook up all my friends and listen i'm all for hooking up your friends if they're gonna help you out and they're gonna do the right thing i would love to see this guy in another city council i don't know how everyone in uniform or not in uniform on the police department was not laughing at him because i guarantee everyone else in that room was
0: I'll say this, and I, I want to pinpoint this out. I'm not making fun of him because the way that he says the escapization as a mistake. I have plenty of friends that have accents. English is their second language. Uh, one of my best friends, he's from Brazil. I can barely understand him on the phone. He, he, he's, he still has a tough time learning English, but he's one of my best friends. And somehow we communicate, but he's intelligent. And he knows his jobs. He knows what he does. The reason why he couldn't pronounce the escusation... I have friends that are disabled. I support... this. There's plenty of people that are extremely intelligent, but they don't have that silver tongue, as some people do. But the reason why he couldn't say it properly is because he was thinking at the same time because he had no idea what his job is. It was completely reflective of his face, the mannerisms, the way he sat back in his chair, the way that he didn't even know who to identify who he's speaking to because he didn't know his job. That's why he mischaracterized and did not say that name correctly. That's why I making fun of him because he doesn't know his job. He doesn't know what the options are. He could not even figure out. I think he's obviously just a figurehead. He's a name again. We promote people to deputy commissioner just to give them a title so we can hook our people up. I think we can I, identify someone else who was recently hooked up with the rank of deputy commissioner for not doing a good job. I think there was someone else we just recognized that. Do you remember?
4: I don't know. I'm blasting everybody. I <laughs> deputy commissioner Holmes. Oh, oh, yeah. Of probation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Deputy
0: commissioner. So, yeah. But again, I just think that the reason why he couldn't speak and he had a complete fumbling of the mouth is because he doesn't know his job. That yeah. is a major problem. You can't even... He should have been so excited. Here you are. You're the deputy commissioner of community affairs, which usually is not someone that we actually hear from at a meeting like this. You have an identity. I, I'm sorry. You have a chance to speak out. He should have been excited to answer this question, especially an opportunity to talk about kids and de-escalation. Such a buzzword. This should have been so easy for him. Hey, I got kids involved in this program and this is what they do and it, it, it helps them de-escalate. He didn't say anything. I mean, do the kids meditate? Do they play basketball? What do they do? Nothing. We don't know anything. And they, But yet they changed a the program that we don't know about a month ago. He couldn't even figure out when it was changed. You think he would know that answer He would know it right away exactly. Oh, I know the exact day why we change it. He offered zero substance to the table. Zero.
4: Yeah, and I would love to know what what the the chair of the Public Safety Committee thinks, because obviously she was like, this guy's an idiot. I'm not asking him any other questions. (laughs) Obviously, you know, she told him where he had to look. Hey, I'm over here. She corrected him on the de-escalation. And the other thing, he goes, we turn out of 127 Pennsylvania. So – does he even go to that building? Because it, it's 127 Pennsylvania Avenue is Cab. It's the headquarters for the community Affairs Bureau. I'm going to say he doesn't turn out of there and he turns out of one police plaza because it didn't even sound like he was real familiar with it. It's also called 127 Penn. A lot of people call it. You know, that's the name. Um, beautiful building. But it seemed like he wasn't too familiar with it either. 127 Pennsylvania. Like what? That's where we that's where they turn out of. And I think he did say that, right? That's where they turn out of. Right? Like I'm pretty thing. sure. Can you play okay, the clip again? One more time. Let's listen to it one more time. This was good.
2: Good morning, Deputy Commissioner Mark Stewart. Good morning, In place assistant. we have an option program that we have, um, it turns out at one two seven at Pennsylvania. And their main objectives is to take our youth. And teach them skills, de-escalation, and. Is the, is the training altered to young people? I'm over here. Oh, oh, hey. hey mm-hmm. How you doing? I'm um, yes, it's altered to, able, to, able to young people and it's been a great success in our options and our program. Uh, the success has been so great that we're going to spread it to four, four boroughs now. When was the last time you revised it and revamped it? Excuse me. When was the last time you revised it or revamped the training, the um, de-escalation training? We revised it uh,
0: probably about a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I can watch this all day. Actually, you know what's interesting? We revised Chuck- it
4: probably about a month ago. I, I, but like that, 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 that deserved one more question. What, would you change? It deserved one more question. It did. It deserved one more question.
0: He she says the chief. Very telling what he says So I, I had taken this course And it was about doing investigations And interrogations And when people Lie about something They remove themselves from the equation So they won't say the word I They'll actually say they It, them Or it happened So if you you listen He says it turns out At 127 Pennsylvania He never says I or we, because he doesn't. That's where the lie is. So subconsciously, he removes himself from that story. That's how they do some of these homicidal, uh, these homicidal interrogations. They'll ask somebody from the start of the day of what they did the entire day, and they'll say, "I went here, you know, I went to the store, I bought this." And when it came it comes time to when they actually have to talk about when they actually committed the act, they'll they'll say, "It happened around this time, you know, they did this." Uh, Let's well, say. Went to the store. They won't say I went to the store, and that's exactly what he said here. He said, "It turns out." You got to hear that. If you hear that, if you ever have an opportunity to listen again, it says, "It turns out for one twenty-seven pen." I think it's pretty telling here that he probably works remote, or I don't know if he actually works, or, or what he does. But I don't think he's ever even seen his building on Google Maps.
4: <laughs> Dude, he he was three sentences in, not even. He was a few words in, and he just started fumbling through this big book that he had in front of him. You know, I don't know what he was looking for. You know, like, what, I mean, what? I, you know, I, I don't have a book in front of me. I don't, I don't have any information in front of me. We just come on here and talk shit. Sometimes we upload video. Sometimes we don't. I mean, he doesn't know his job. Doesn't know his job. Clearly doesn't know his job. Complete embarrassment, complete incompetence to the NYPD complete failure on Key Chance Sewell's part. I know she was embarrassed sitting there. I know Jeffrey Madry was embarrassed sitting there. I know everybody there on the NYPD side was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and I guarantee they were all laughing about it driving home. I guarantee it. I guarantee it.
0: What What were the skills that they learned? He said that they. it's an option program. They learned they learn skills. What, what are the skills that these kids learn? They didn't tell us anything. He had a fumble to the papers. Like I got papers right now because I'm writing down notes as we talk. It's great. He fumbled to the papers to find what? You have 10 seconds to answer a question about your job. Your job. You're the deputy commissioner. How much is, does this man get paid
4: to do this job? I'm going to say like close to 250 a year. Take home call, maybe even a security detail, maybe even a driver pick him up at his house. I mean, I, what does he bring? Should... I'll retire all over again and give this guy my salary because he's obviously he's going to be effective. <laughs> Eric, it's a good thing you retired too. We, we, we're, our money, the money that we left on the table, is going to great places, as we could. <clears throat> I,
0: I wish that question was asked to, to Darsh. Do you think that <laughs> instead of asking about the cops, do you think that this man has earned? His salary, a year. Do you think that he's going to be effective? I mean, maybe he has software to deal with. I don't know. I, I mean, he did. Uh, does he need glasses? He didn't even know where the lady was standing. Uh, it was very quite telling. You and I do a, a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour podcast, an hour with no notes, and we just talk about uh, experiences that we have actually delved in and knowledgeable. And we, we did our jobs, and we still remember it. I mean, he... he He's doing the job as we speak He clearly doesn't know it But He was a cop in the 80s And every time I hear one of these chiefs talk about being a cop in the 80s Apparently they were the best Because they dealt with all this crime that's going on So yeah. Any thoughts on that?
4: No, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right I, we, I listened to uh, I sent you a Rita Cosby show Monahan was on the Rita Cosby show And she asked him do you think like policing is a good job now? And he's like, ah, it was always a tough job. I was a cop in the eighties. You know, I can't even do them. I'd have to, I'd have to put a bunch of rocks in my mouth. But he, you know, he's like, it was always a, it was always a, a tough job. I was a cop in the eighties. You know, and the murder rate, it was worse then. I mean, the city was worse, but the, being a cop was unbelievable. Those guys did whatever the fuck they wanted. They were kings of the city. Nobody bothered them. Yeah, and it was after the 70s when cops were being assassinated. If I worked for a lieutenant one time. You know what he shows me? He shows me him and his partner in a Polaroid. It was a Polaroid of them in Miami International Airport. And he goes, yeah, we used to play this game on patrol. How far you could get in one tour and take a photo. And this is what these guys were doing. You know, that's how much freedom they had. That's how much, you know, that's how it it was a totally different job and they weren't intrusive police like we were and they weren't held to the same standard and they didn't have the same policies. I mean, the patrol guide was nothing. The patrol guide was probably this big. Don't drink and drive. You know, you know that. I mean, I I heard stories from old timers that they smoked weed on the job because it was legal at the time. Pot was still legal. They're like, yeah, when I was a kid, we, we used to smoke pot in the car. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, we was legal. I was like, what? I was
0: like, it was? You know, it's ex- extremely reflective. I used to always use the terminology. I used, to, I used to find it funny. And, John, you know what I'm talking about. And the cops, any my cops that are out there listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. You see that cop, and, hey, if it's you, I, 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 I would laugh at it. I, I'll tell you to your face. I'll still laugh at you. And cops – would go from one precinct, be transferred to another one, and they would they would wear on their gun uh, collar brass. So for, for civilians that, that don't understand, collar brass is actually, it goes on your actual collar, and it signifies the precinct that you work at. So if you worked at the 7-5 precinct, there should be extreme amount of pride working at the 7-5, because it's arguably probably the busiest precinct in the entire city, on many levels. Now, if you worked at the 7-5 precinct, and you got transferred to the 100, which is probably arguably one of the slowest precincts in the city. You might be that guy that that takes that pin from the collar brass and puts it in your cuff case so you're identifiable to the other cops. And they know, oh, he worked in the 7-5, it's in his cuff case. So I used to say guys wear that for street credit. Well, my question used to be, so I would approach these guys, hey, that's great. You were in the 7-5. But did you work in the 7-5? Just like I told guys that worked with me in the South Bronx. That's great. You drive around the South Bronx. But do you actually work in the South Bronx? I will take the guy that works in the slowest precinct that actually doesn't choose the police work over the guy in the 7-5 that drove around with blinders and didn't do a job or wanted to be the TS, the telephone switchboard operator every day because he was scared of the street. So... To me, that means nothing. Hey, Chief Monaghan, that's great. You claim you were such a tough guy. You were out there in the 80s. Well, it wasn't very reflective when you took a knee during the riots and you bowed down to everybody. Yeah, you got into a little scuffle when you got attacked on the bridge, but you had to. You had to defend yourself. But where were you taking a stand? You didn't take a stand. You took a knee. That's what you did. So don't compare it to me how tough it was in the 80s and compare to the guys now who have to wear a taser have to wear a body camera, have to have all uh, business cards. I'm going to say this right now, and I know that a lot of our viewers might not like this in so some of the old timers, but this is the truth statement right now. None of those guys would be prepared to put a uniform on today. In none. Zero. In order to transition to be a police officer today as we served and as we move into this crazy time, they we need an extensive amount of training and time to get comfortable with even just a phone in their face. These guys didn't even have phones in their faces. So don't tell me you had it worse. Yeah, you drove around. There were more homicides. But what did you do? You didn't engage the public in the manner that we did and the guys are and girls are doing now. Absolutely not. There were transit rooms that some of these guys were hiding out and sleeping, getting naps in the tar- in their tour. Same thing in housing. You are not held accountable in the manner that the police officers are when we served, and they are today. So stop comparing. It's completely, it's apples and oranges. It doesn't compare. I I hate hearing that. I hate hearing that tough guy talk. Yeah, it's great to tell stories that we can't even verify. Absolutely ridiculous. That's my point on that. What do you think?
4: Yeah, listen. I mean, th- there were great cops back then too. There were some cops that were unbelievable, and they were out there proactively policing, but they weren't held to the standard that these guys were. And I, th- I do think there were a lot rougher guys than this generation. So I do get a little bit of the, oh, we weren't pussies like these guys. <laughs> and, well, then, I agree with that. I'll say that they weren't a lot. They, they were, you know, they were different guys. I don't think they last here. I think they leave. I don't think they'd be able to deal with the micromanagement. I don't think they would. I think they, I don't think they make a 20 year career. I don't think they make a 30 year career. I think right off the bat, they're going to be like, what the fuck is this? I'm not doing that. I'm not doing this. Who the fuck is this guy telling me what to do? You know what I mean? Wear the body camera, all that stuff. I mean, I, I and, and I said it before and I'll say it again. You know, I think most of them would get fired if they really went out there and you were like, hey, I'm going to make you a cop for one day. I think in that first tour, they're getting fired. They have the, – whether they get fired or not, they'll, they'll have committed a fireable – multiple fireable offenses today. So, like, yeah, I, I, you know, I have a lot of old-timers following me on Twitter, on Instagram, and I love interacting with them. There are some people who didn't forget, but there's a lot of guys that are like, ah, it was always a rough job, kid. It, you know, it's not – and I'm like, you have no idea. You don't know what you're talking I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a totally different job from the time you were on. You don't even know the pressures of it. And, and I'll even go for like a generational, just a little bit before us, the guys that are in like their late fifties coming up on that 60 now, you know, even when I was talking to them, and in, in my career I was like there was a huge disconnect I was like dude you don't even know what you're talking about you know you were smacking people in the face with radios and, and you know like like and I'm not saying that because all of you guys are doing it I'm saying because specifically this guy's telling me a story that he smacked someone in the face with a radio you know and I'm <laughs> like, well, I, I you know I'm like I, you can't do that like that's it's you know I, I, I again I think that we're better cops I think we serve the community better um but you know, I do think that we are a less aggressive department at this point. I, when me and you were cops, though, when we were young rookie cops, we were the most aggressive version of the NYPD. There was the most proactive police. We actually did the job. Not that we were beating people up. I mean, when we well, if we had to, if they fought, but we didn't. We didn't. We were. We had very strict accountability but we were proactive, aggressive department. And that was the mentality of the department to thrive in the department. You had to have been a good cop. If you weren't a good cop, you got shunned upon, you got all the shit details, you know, you didn't have an easy road. I mean, that's that's just the truth of it. And, and I still say at some points, I think that it was a better version. It was a much better version of itself at that point. People were more trained. There was more of a mission. There was more officer safety there was a lot more public safety. I mean, I, I know personally I didn't worry about my wife or my parents or my sisters or my friends. I knew that if they called 911, there was going to be somebody just like me showing up there, and they would handle that situation. I don't have that feeling anymore.
0: You know, I love that statement that you just said. That's so true. I, I agree with you. you. You knew that someone else wearing the uniform had the same ideology, had the same principles that you do, and had the same aggressive control that you have and, and i love the comparison this is 100 percent true that's that's right i do believe the generation of cops in the 80s they did have a tougher mindset and they were tougher overall than the men and women now and that's because they're hiring meek timid and docile police officers and they're not training them there's it's all about this buzzword de-escalation and there's no support so they can't even be aggressive and even if they have that potential uh inside to actually uh, act in that manner they can't because the Civilian Complete Review Board, the media, the public eye, and the mayor telling them it doesn't look good. So this is completely it just can't compare the time that they're in and the time now. It just – it's completely evolved into a revolution. I don't think we can compare them both at all. What I will say, though, is – and this may sound biased, and I agree with you. You said it earlier. We were the best version. We were kind of middle ground. We had the aggressive control. We had – we had the remnants of the cops before us that went through the eighties and nineties. And then we verged into this new era. So we had the ability to utilize technology. We had the ability to utilize phones, but we did have the old mindset of actually just engaging people and, and actual, you know, those boots on the ground, the, the observation skills forming that baseline. So we had, it was kind of hybrid. We had technology, but we also had the observation skills, putting them in that, putting them together, being held accountable because Comstat. that, Engage in the public doing stop, question, and frisk based on the cases of People versus DeBoer and Terry versus Ohio. We were very savvy in understanding case law, but we also had, which I think is the most important thing that they don't have now, is morale. We were proud to be cops, we were proud to c- come to work, we were proud. We actually went out together. All of us, right? We went out together after work. Before work, we had functionings. We built relationships. And if the public understands that's very important to your public safety, that the cops have camaraderie amongst themselves so that they trust the public. What John just said is completely clear and reflective of that, so that when John feels comfortable that his family is safe, I feel safe because there's someone just like us who's going to respond. Because now I say to myself, damn, if I still lived in New York City, if my family had a problem. Who are they going to get? Who's who's responding? It's questionable. The two that respond, you might have to say, "Hey, can can you send two different ones?" Uh, this is not going to work. This is, they're not going to help. It's unfortunate. I'm not making fun of everyone. There are some great cops that are out there right now that that have that primal aggression and they have control. But the overall riding factor of what we see, unfortunately, what's been highlighted is those that are me, timid, and docile. And that is the general population right now. There are a couple of outliers, but as a whole, the general population is me, timid, and docile, and just not paired. And they're not ready, f- re- not ready for any storm that comes their way.
4: Yeah, no, I I I agree hundred percent. The overriding, you know, they're all great cops out there, one hundred percent. But the overall is not the majority of people that are going to show up when you call nine one one. You're going to probably say, "Why the fuck did I call nine one one? I'm never calling. I'm never calling again." You know. And then you know, who's beat down? Who's you know experiencing whatever they're experiencing at this point? I mean, I I uh, it's funny. I got one of my haters that is always like bashing me. I won't blow him up, but uh, he, uh, he messaged me the other day. He said, do you think that this is still a good job? And, huh. I said, and I said to him, I was like, well, I was like, listen, I love the NYPD. I don't know if you know that. I'm like, I know you think I probably bashed the NYPD. I'm like, but I love the NYPD. I love New York City. I think that it's in a really bad time, and I feel really, really bad for you guys. I, I, I loved going to work. I loved doing the job. I have very fond memories and I would not change it for the world. Like there's nothing else. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to go back in time and I'm going to go make money. I could do that. I still have the option now. I could still do it now. I don't have to be sitting here doing this. I could be making money right now instead of talking to you guys. Um, you know, I, it wasn't my focus. It, it wasn't what made me happy. I liked, I'm, you know, I like, I liked doing what I did. I liked being a, a New York city police officer. I liked living in New York city. I loved all those things. You know, though it's where I grew up. I always lived there. Um, I was very proud. And uh, I said, you know, but I think that, I think that, this too shall pass as long as there's people like me and like Eric pushing back. And he said to me, I'm in BMOC now. And I think I'm going to vest out. And I was like, wow, that's fucking, you know, when I was in BMOC, the last thing on my mind was I was going to vest out. I was, you know, I was so excited that I was going to be a Sergeant. You know, I was so excited that I was going to get up to next rank I was going to go face on a totally new challenge. Like even though I was a cop, I was I was at that point in my career, I was the assistant field intelligence officer. And I still felt like, you know, I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know where I was going to police. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. But I knew I wanted to be a sergeant and I knew I, wa- I, was, I wanted to be good at it. And I knew that I was going to bring my experiences as a police officer, my aggressive Form of policing into Wherever they sent me and I was Excited and I was happy and I was Scared and I was like I had all these Feelings the last thing on My mind Was retiring Or leaving and it's Fucking sad
0: Well you know what this completely debunks All this budget talk And and talk about pay because this exactly highlights What I'm talking about this particular cop That you spoke to is highly aware that he he or she is B block right now. They're going to get a, a substantial raise to a contract that is only one year behind and they're going to get a substantial salary, especially with the overtime right now. So obviously pay is not even a factor. Again, I said, pay is at the bottom of the list. This completely solidifies what we've been saying. It's about morale. It's about all the other things The pay is completely at the bottom of the list, because if pay was a factor, this cop is getting promoted. That should just wipe out all these other, all these problematic issues. They should be happy and want to come to work. Honestly, I think right now it's not a good job. I don't, I want to be completely honest and true. It is not a good job. I think it's terrible. I think that there were always problematic issues, but there was always stuff to stay for the variable supper. No one at the time when you got on the job, no one even thought of leaving. We all knew, Oh, got 20 years to go. There was no, conversation about doing five or ten it was no one, we we didn't think anyone was going to leave, right? You were shocked when you heard someone left, you were shocked when you heard someone got fired, it was, am I right John? It was a complete shocker now that's a completely different game because at the time, because the morale was so good all the other factors, it was worth overlooking problematic or minor issues, but there's so many issues right now that are compiled up. It's just not worth saying. Overall, it is not a good job. Could it come back to a better place? Of course it can. Anything can go up and anything could go down, but a job is not a career. It's not the same thing. And I don't think it's a career anymore. It's just that. It's just a job.
4: I think it's a job that's worth leaving and not worth staying. Yeah. I mean, and and I'm just going to go right now for the public. But even for the young cops, you know, I made great money. I made shit money when I was a cop. (laughs) I made shit money my first uh, three, almost four years as a a sergeant. And I always did overtime. I always did an excessive amount of overtime. I always did overtime. Right. Um, And I made shit money in all that time. Young cop, young sergeant. But then after that, I made very good money, man. And I didn't get to LSA like uh, Eric at that point. And I didn't even hit top pay at that point. Um, But even my salary as like a second year lieutenant, I mean, I loved it. I'll I'll do anything at that salary at that point. You know, I'm like, I could live my life comfortably. I could go on vacations. I could drive nice cars. I could do whatever I want to do with that amount of money. Um, You know, I set myself up for that, obviously. Um, But... You know, there was a lot of years of struggling and building to get to that point. But I made great money. Money was never an issue for me. I actually miss the money now. I'm not getting I'm not getting paid right now and I miss it. You know, it's uh I mean I'm I'm making money doing other stuff, but that money was solid every every two weeks. Bang, 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 seven dollar seven dollars uh out of your paycheck for health care i'm paying twelve hundred dollars a month for health care right now um so the money like when people tell me about the money i'm like well you know the money sucks when 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 you're starting out but it's it's to, as you build through your career right i always did the ithp in the 50 and it's something you new guys can't do which is terrible and and you know i was getting about I think I was at the point where I was getting like $30,000 a year, just in interest, just showing up to work, just showing up to work. My pension was accruing $30,000 in interest. That's if I never put a dollar into it. So, I mean, to me, it was a pretty lucrative career, you know, again, I don't really come from anything and I live a pretty good life now and I am not even getting paid. And I, I vested at 17.8 years to be exact. Um, you know, so I, 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 the money, I don't, I don't think like when you're saying, all oh, people don't want to take this job, you know, there were guys coming on this job for 25 grand and it wasn't that much cheaper to live in the city than it is now. It just wasn't.
0: Yeah, I agree. At, at the time, the ra- the rates of just groceries and, and commodities, and if you look at the GOP and the and, and Dow Jones, it was definitely comparable to living at 25,000, right now getting 42 with the amount of inflation. And yet guys were dying to get the job. It didn't matter. That's what I said. It didn't matter if you pay them dirt because it was a good job. Wow. You could actually go home and say you're NYPD. There was pride. I don't feel the same way right now. I, I, I got to be honest with you. I don't have any shirts that say NYPD. I, I don't have hats that say NYPD retirement. And I should, I should be proud and say that, Hey, that was my career. And you know, it's, but it's not reflective a- anymore. It's not, you know, when these videos emerge of of police officers getting manhandled not you know having these tiktoks and dancing around it's just it's embarrassing to me i, I get it we should have fun sometimes but when there's so many videos emerging of all these tiktoks and that, it's it's become this photo op it's not about policing anymore i saw a video that emerged on instagram about a review of policing and review from March 10th to March 17th with the NYPD. And it's all about the pictures of the St. Patty's Day parade and community fairs. It's not much about police work. It's just a big photo op. And that's what the department's become. It's been this giant photo op. I mean, commanding officers are, are basically battling each other. Who could have a better Twitter page? It's not, it's not about who could have a better special operations team anymore who could actually do the best of the to police work. Well who has the better Twitter page? Who dressed the precinct up better for breast cancer awareness month? Whose RMPs look better to, to for virtual signaling for for a uh, gay pride parade. But it's our focus should be on public safety. These things are great. They're great gestures, it's nice to show the community that you care. But the ultimate focus and always the focal point should be public safety. I think public safety's on the back burner. I think when we talk about the cops, again, I want to say that I really believe that pay is at the bottom of the list. When things are are problematic, that's when the pay edge gets looked at. But when things are great, you could pay these guys anything. Honestly, if things were great right now, the chart was great, morale was great, you could never come, You could come. You could say, you know what? Forget about the contract. You guys are going to make the same pay. They would still come to the job and they would still do the job. They would love it. They would wear t shirts because it's not about the money. It's more about being a part of something, being proud. You're NYPD. I mean, the movies, the shows about NYPD, all these stores. When, you know, I worked in Times Square doing all the time and people were coming there buying hats and mugs. I love NYPD. I wonder. If they'll feel the same way, we don't even see new shows emerge anymore about the NYPD. What would it be about the neighborhood coordination offices? It'd be about the guys being on telephone switchboard, be about guys being taught by the civilian complaint review board, guys going to work, trying to avoid actually doing police work. So they don't get in trouble. That would be my show. Maybe that's what this show is. That's what we tell it. And that's maybe that's why people listening. (laughs) I don't know, but that's the reality. You have to go to work and try to not do police work so you don't get in trouble. How sick does that sound? You can't help the public if you want to not get in trouble. If you want to maintain your own safety, you can't even help the public. That's the bottom line. They can't help you.
4: Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's a sick thing. The bottom line is the criminals are getting paid today. The police officers are the one paying them, and they're the only ones held accountable for that person's actions not the not the person that committed the actions. The criminal is completely absolved of his actions, and the New York City police officer is the only person held accountable for that, legally, financially, every and and in and, and, and every manner. Um, and it, it's got to stop, you know. And I'm glad to see that, you know, I, I'm, I really am. I'm very glad to see the last couple of days of the union's Twitter pages and what they're putting out. You know, and I'll give you a big shout out, Eric, because it's definitely me and you. They want to get on. They want to get it out before we do. So they stop looking like shit. Um, But I want you guys to really care, too. I want you guys to really care. I want you to focus in. um, You know, this is what needs to happen. You know, this is. There's there's a, there's a lot of different ways to affect the world and to and to do things. But media is important. You guys have a huge pulpit, a huge platform. You didn't use it during the vaccine mandate. You didn't use it during the inception of the disciplinary matrix. You didn't use it during the inception of the diaphragm law. You know, I mean, most people don't even know what you guys are doing to fight back. And I'm talking about the cops on the job. I'm not even talking about the public. The public is like I, doesn't even know we have the unions. You know, it it's it's bad. So you got to start using that pulpit. You got to start doing it more. You got to fucking start pushing back at this shit. You know, even if it's just this, stop playing the politic bullshit. Listen, you you, you is, is Tiffany Caban or O.C. Che? Are they ever gonna help you out? Are they ever gonna vote for you? Are they ever gonna do? No, the people that support you are the people that support you. And 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 I get you're gonna cow to some stuff. But not that, not with, not with this progressive leftist narrative. Eric Adams is a piece of shit. Stop pretending that he's out here helping us. Stop playing the fucking games.
0: Again, I want I want to reach out to the public. I'm going to work on. Uh, John, if you're going to help me, I really appreciate it. But I'm going to work on compiling data. So again, if you believe at this point. This is just in the infancy. I'm just going to start gathering information. I'm going to explore this and really work on it. So uh, if I need to fight legislation, I will. So at this point, if you believe that you were affected by the city council hearing uh, city council hearing that you just heard, where they proved that the police department did not properly vet these cases, if you believe you were affected either by the statute of limitations or that you were unfairly uh, served with papers because the police department did not vet your case properly, please reach out to us on the podcast. Reach out to us in any manner. Please leave me your name. Uh, just leave me your name and, and your contact information. You can leave me a phone number, your email, or both. At this point, you don't have to put the information about the case. Just if you believe that you were affected by it, I, I prefer, uh, please leave your name, your rank, and some contact information. And once I gather more information and we get a large sum of people, uh, we will explore more options. Uh, so please, again, I- I'd like to reach out to you and send that information. And I, I want to help you. And, and we will be the catalyst for change here.
4: Yeah. It's dot uh, www.thefinestunfiltered.com. You have the ability to message us there. You can message us there. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. You can message us there. All our messages are open. Um, yeah. We're going to start working on this. So, I mean, If you guys don't want to be embarrassed, maybe you should start working on it. too. You know, reach out. We're here. New York's finance, retired on a filter podcast. We'll be back at you. We got uh, Jose LaSalle coming on actually tomorrow. Um, I don't know when this will come out. We might put this out after, but he's he's coming on the day after we shoot this one. Um, That should be interesting. Uh, We'll see. Hopefully we keep it civil and we can do it good. So let's see what happens, you know.
0: Uh, that should be the ultimate goal. That nothing they say is personal, and uh, we shouldn't take anything they say personal because uh, these are not not people that I characterize as as quality people. I've some of their followers had given me death threats on on Twitter and Instagram. Quite funny. I mean, the death threats come from uh, people that look like they couldn't fight with a paper bag, so it's pretty funny. Uh, I find it humorous. So uh, you know, if you if I had an opportunity to see these death threats, I, w- I would show it to you. But uh, Copwatch was was kind enough to take it down. So, but uh, if you have an opportunity to, to, to see some of these guys, it, it's great. <laughs> Believe me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I see you getting tired. But listen, everybody, thank you so much. Watching 265 Police Live at New York Spies time and Filter Podcast. We are here to see, the, uh, see and seek the truth. John, thank you for taking this journey with me, as always. Guys, have a great night. Thank you so much.